Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, powered by Christianity Today. Hey, what's up, JR? Hey, Doug. Good to see you here. Good to see you too. This is weird because we're in the future, right? <laughs> yeah. Explain how we're in the future here, because this is a little mind bending for you and I. Yeah. So uh, I I will be on sabbatical when this airs. And so super excited, but we also wanted to work ahead and get a bunch of episodes done and finished. And you'll kind of notice there's there's been quite a few singles, you know, where I'll be by myself or JR will be by himself. And we've just tried to work ahead to continue to offer support and care uh, and equipping during the season of me being on sabbatical. So I'll probably be resting and watching a baseball game while fishing, I think is what I'm hoping to be doing right now. Yeah. So we're recording this long before you're on your sabbatical. It's going to be an amazing interview. We're so excited about this, but uh, yeah. So we're kind of thinking into the future, long into the future here in this conversation. So this is, you know, May, but we have no idea what May is going to be like when it actually goes live. So hopefully it doesn't confuse or bend our, our <laughs> listeners' minds too much. Yeah, don't on bet it. on the Phillies. We can tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few things we do know in yes. the future. We'll yeah. have one of those is don't put, don't put the, all your betting money on the Phillies. <laughs> yeah, that's a good call. So we're really excited about this interview that we have coming up with uh, one of our favorite poets. And so we thought it was only fitting in this intro time to actually share some of our favorite poems. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about this. Uh, Some people are thinking, wow, two dudes getting together, uh, reading poetry to each other. But poetry is so important. In fact, I was thinking about this recently in this season, Doug. I think uh, the more pain we're in, the more important poetry is. In fact, Amanda Gorman, you know, she was that very young poet uh, who shared at the presidential election, uh, sorry, at the inauguration, mm-hmm. and how it just gripped the nation. And it was a beautiful poem, but I think the reason why it gripped us so much is poetry expresses things sometimes that prose cannot. And I think with all the hurt and the pain and the division and the wounds that we've gone through as a country, I really believe we needed poetry more than probably another speech. Well and so... Anyway, so this is why I think, and I've been leaning into poetry a lot more even in the last few weeks uh, and just loss and wounds. And I, I just think poetry has a way of saying uh, something that's so crucial. So that's why we're going to share. I mean, we're sort of joking around two dudes sharing poetry with each other, but like this a is a segment. season. Yeah. Yeah. This is a yeah. season where we need it maybe more than any other time. And mm-hmm. so um, I'm, I'm curious, what, what poem, uh, what poem do you want to read here today, Doug? Yeah. So not to, not to feel like a fanboy to the person that we're about to interview. Um, but uh, I've just been really struck with this statement, uh, especially moving into sabbatical. And um, it's by Malcolm Geit, and it's in uh, Psalm 1 of his book, David's Crown. And it just says this at the end. It says, slowly discern a life, a truth away, where simple being flowers in delight. Then let the chaff of life just blow away. Um, yeah, I, I feel like even just the way that I've been sitting with this or this has been sitting with me maybe is the better way to phrase it. It just is, it's causing me to stop, breathe slow and to actually remember that Christ is present in this discerning process of what does it look like to slow down? And I love it. Yeah. So that's just it. I think for me, that one has, it continues to come back and the words just have a lot of power and I, I, but there's a lot of mystery there still, which is just great. How about you, JR? Mm. Yeah. Re- recently I, uh, 
reread uh, George Herbert's uh, poem called Prayer. And uh, I think if I'm counting right, there are 27 different word pictures in this poem about what prayer is. And I find at different times, like, wow, like that, that phrase or that image really jumps out at me. So um, again, George Herbert, uh, his poem called Prayer. Prayer, the church's banquet, angel's age, God's breath in man returning to his birth, the soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage, the Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth, engine against the almighty, sinner's tower, reverse thunder, Christ's side piercing spear, the six days world transposing in an hour, a kind of tune which all things hear and fear, softness and peace and joy and love and bliss, exalted manna, gladness of the best, heaven in ordinary, man well-dressed, the Milky Way, the bird of paradise, church bells beyond the stars heard, the soul's blood, the land of spices, something understood. Mm. I, I love, I mean, gosh, I mean, every time I read that, I, there's a different metaphor that I'm like, wow, bird of paradise. Like, I love that. I love that flower. It's an amazing flower. Like, yes, like that is a beautiful description of prayer or the soul's blood. Yeah, man, my, my goodness, what an image. Prayer is the soul's blood. So anyway, lo love, uh, love this. And I return to this regularly. Even when I feel stuck in prayer, it's good for me to read this and be reminded of like, is there one of these I can latch onto as just an image to guide me into prayer in this season or that's today? In, that's interesting because uh, one of the things that I've been doing the, the last several weeks is for my, my time of quiet in the morning, uh, I've been reading through a poem or two and just writing down the phrase or the metaphor that has stuck out. And then that has been my place of prayer and reflection of the morning, which has been yeah, kind of a really... It interesting way. It's interesting that you mentioned that. Like I have felt more stuck in rhythms and ruts of prayer. And that's really been a pretty, pretty fantastic way of getting out of those ruts into yeah. new rhythms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, no wonder that the old Testament is mm. a huge percentage of it is, is made up of poetry mm. because sometimes it's the only thing we can articulate. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the poetry is a, is a, a genre of our Bible. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's what I'm really excited about of this interview with, yeah. with Malcolm Geit, uh, to be able to talk about this and the importance of this, especially for those of us who say, poetry is just not my thing. I don't write poetry. I don't read poetry. Uh, it may be important to some people. I'm not sure it's important to me. I really hope that this episode really connects with, with you, if that's you, if you have more of an analytical, scientific, you know, uh, architectural the type brain that maybe this uh, this loosens something and jolts something uh, open in, in all of us uh, in this season. Malcolm Geit is an English poet, singer-songwriter, Anglican priest, and academic. He's the chaplain at Girton College at Cambridge and associate chaplain at St. Edward King and Martyr in Cambridge. He lectures widely in England and North America on theology, literature, and the arts. In addition to being a poet-priest, 
Geit is the author of several books of poetry, as well as several books on Christian faith and theology. His most recent book, David's Crown, is the focus of our conversation on this episode. He also performs as a singer and guitarist, fronting the rhythm and blues band Mystery Train. You can read more about him, as well as many of his poems, at malcolmgeit.com. Enjoy this conversation with the creative, talented, and theologically astute Malcolm Geit. Well, Malcolm Geit, welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Well, thank you. It's very good to... uh... Good to be with you, and uh, I like I like your title. Yes, it's, being a pastor on a Monday morning is a different thing from Sunday evening. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. is. Yeah. Well, I enjoy telling people that you're one of my favorite living poets, so it, it truly is an honor and a privilege to be able to have you on the program here. It's something we've been desiring for quite some time, and grateful to do it. So, um, I, I'm I'm curious, and and. Your love of being both a chaplain, and so you've got your ministry background, but also the idea of being a poet. So what do we miss in the Christian faith when we embrace prose, but we exclude poetry? Well, I think this would be true not only in Christian faith, but other things. What you miss is a certain kind of lift and magic and enchantment, apart from anything else. I mean, the word enchantment has the word chant in it, and I think really good poetry has carries a kind of music in in it but in the music is a lift and in the lift there's sometimes a way of reframing the stuff you're dealing with Hmm. i mean seamus heaney talked about the redress of poetry that it pushes back and redresses an imbalance in your life and he also talked about how it gives you fleeting moments of transfiguration you know moments that you, you suddenly glimpse things in a new light i mean the poet um George Herbert, who's a great hero of mine because, like me, he was a priest poet in the Church of England. He was doing this pastoral thing and writing poetry, albeit in the 17th century. So he's got a poem called Prayer, which is just a beautiful cascade of phrases. And each of these phrases, he doesn't explain it, he just gives it to you, but each of them is, is, is prayer, but I also think is poetry. So one of those phrases is the six days world transposing in an hour. And the six days world is not only, you know, the creation, God made the world, you know, in six days, rest on the seventh, but but it's the normal, busy six days world, you know, the, the world of your work, the world that's throwing stuff at you. And, you know, sometimes you can't deal with that. And yet in prayer and through poetry, you want to do something with it. You can't just ignore it. So he uses this beautiful metaphor of transposition. Now, you probably had that experience. You may even have had it in your church where... You're singing a hymn that might be a good hymn, and we're not singing it. But unfortunately, it's in the wrong key for most people. We get that all the time in the Church of England because a lot of the settings were done for sort of choir boys in cathedrals, and the rest of us are struggling. But if you've got a merciful and skillful music director, they transpose it, and suddenly it's in your range. They haven't changed the fundamental melody. The intervals are the same. The, the tempo is the same. But you can you can manage it, and you can not only manage it to hear it, you can sing it. And I sometimes think that the the musical, the beautiful, the kind of suggestive element in poetry can take all your jumble of stuff, a lot of the stuff that's life thrown at you, thrown at you all week, and you think is not in my range. Suddenly, it's transposed. It's singable. It's dealable with you know. And I think that's um, that's one of the things that, that poetry can offer. I mean, the other thing, frankly, in in terms of the way we we live and the speed at which we live and the skim reading we have to do down through the titles of emails and everything 
stressing us out because we we've only got just time and to be alarmed about it we haven't got quite got time to meditate or reflect on it uh, a contemporary poet called adam crothers uh, in a talk i heard him give once um said a beautiful thing he said poetry is language slowed down mm. so it becomes like suddenly you can catch it and dance with it and move with it it's not just zinging by you know and then it has beautiful things to disclose just like as you may remember back in the days of one's youth sometimes when after you've been flinging yourself about in the disco for a bit a slow dance could be a very beautiful thing and disclose many things you know it's a, it's a bit of a slow dance with language really mm-hmm. well the reason why Doug and I are laughing a little bit is literally <laughs> right you didn't know this Malcolm but right before we recorded this I actually happened to share George Herbert's prayer together <laughs> in our introduction to this particular podcast episode. So it's almost oh, wow. as if you were listening into us <laughs> on that. But uh, And I talked about uh, another phrase he used in there. He said, the soul's blood. And he also talked about bird of paradise. Yeah. Now, the beautiful metaphors in there. And so that's why we're chuckling here. Well, uh, I wish our audience could see. I've, but. I've lived with that poem for many years and loved it. And I've given retreats based around it, and we've we've opened up each mm. phrase. It's been so rich, and I once used to say to people, you know, you could take any one of these phrases and make a whole new poem out of it. And then a couple of years ago, on retreat in myself, I thought, you know, maybe I should take a leaf out of my own book here, or rather, a leaf out of George Herbert's book, and have a go. So over the course of the a year, I wrote a set of twenty-seven sonnets called After Prayer. Mm. take each of the 26 images he has in those short 14 lines and then the final phrase of course which isn't really an image it's a kind of gesture something understood Mm. and i made a poem out of out of each of those you know and um it's amazing how much i mean the soul's blood is a fantastic phrase for prayer because if you start thinking prayer is to the soul what blood is to the body you've got all kinds of things going on you've got you know whose heart is beating it's really the heart of jesus that keeps it going around you don't have to work on it you don't have to think about your blood but how you know it comes to the surface when we're hurt and it, you know and it gives mm. us and you know if you're feeling a bit spiritually anemic maybe you need some spiritual exercise to get the the, the blood of prayer flowing i mean there's all kinds of stuff going on in there wow magnificent so what is the mindset and the heart set of a poet priest? I've always described it as this idea of a poet priest. So you have ministry and you have poetry. How do you see the world differently than maybe others that would consider themselves just a priest or just a pastor? What is the poet priest mindset like? That's a very good question. I think there is at least one sense in which everybody who is a priest is already, even though they may not know it, being a poet mm. they're, they're functioning as a poet i mean for a start i mean i don't know what, what what particular churches you or your listeners go to but i go to you know a liturgical church so we have a we have a set service which is very beautiful and quite ancient and it's carefully crafted words and it's meant to take you on a journey from the time you first say the first thing right through to when you receive your communion and go back into the world with a blessing and it gives you a chance to come forward in confidence but it also gives you a chance to withdraw and say i'm not worthy and then it draws you forward again and as a as a priest who is the 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 conductor as it were and presider and enabler of this collective thing 
it's a poem. The liturgy is a poem. You're drawing through people through a poem. It's it's got a shape and a meaning and carefully chosen words. It's got moments of repetition and reflection. It's got all the things that a good poem should have, plus more because it's enacted and we do it together. And if we're lucky, we do it in a building which is itself, as it were, meaningfully and poetically shaped. And so there's a sense in which you're conducting poetry, even if you may not feel that you're composing it. And of course, if, again, in a liturgical church like ours, the book of poetry, which is right at the heart of the Bible, and whose poems were on the lips of Jesus throughout his ministry, and even as he died on the cross, that is, of course, the book of Psalms, the poems that God gives us right in the middle of the Bible. That's part of worship. So you're always reciting some poetry at some point, some actual poetry, as well as the kind of poetic shaping of the whole thing. So that's the first thing I'd say uh, is you're doing that. And I'd also say to any pastors that have sat and listened very carefully to a parishioner or a, you know, a church member in distress and tried to hear you know, the music behind what they say, try to shape it. The two things you do in that pastoral moment you listen with a discerning ear and then taking the language you've already been given, the, what they've said to you, you reshape it, you tweak the story, you find another way. You respond to the given and try and shape it helpfully in a way that's going to change your hearer. Now, that is exactly what you do in poetry. You may also have did additionally with rhyme and meter. I mean, I like rhyme and meter, but, you know, no poet starts. People say, aren't you terrified of the blank page? You know, I'm not terrified of the blank page because the blank page doesn't exist. There is no blank page. We've all inherited language. And, you know, the thing that gives me confidence as a poet is the, is the conviction that all the words I use are older and wiser than I am. You know, and they've been around things and... I'm trying to listen for their wisdom. I'm trying to listen to the way they talk to each other. I'm trying to see what they have to say to each other and bring it out even more clearly. And again, that's, if you like, in a curious way, a pastoral skill. It's the kind of pastoral skill with words themselves. So the words were part of your flock, as well as, as, well as a pastoring through words. So I think there's a poetic element in priesthood. That's the first thing I'd say. I think the, the other thing I'd say is, is, is that... Um, by practicing poetry, by which I mean both reading it deeply and reciting it, loving it, and from within that, finally joining in myself in the conversation, the long conversation of the English poets, you know, by writing myself, I'm honing, you know, to use a, a, a jargon phrase, transferable skills. <laughs> I think the skills of the poet are transferable directly to the pastoral, and the skills of the pastoral are transferable to the poet. And that was a very important insight for me because it didn't come immediately you know i wanted to be a poet before i considered i had a calling to be a priest and then when i had a calling to be a priest it was you know very strong and i was ministering in tough parishes in what we would call inner city parishes there were huge you know demands and i didn't write any poetry for the first seven years of, mm. of my ordination. And this wasn't like Jared Manley Hopkins being forbidden to by his Jesuit, you know, overseers or anything. This really was partly I was doing this this enacted poetry that was satisfying the poet in me. But partly I just had no time to do it. But gradually after about seven years toil in the vineyard, I realized that I was um I was drying up, you know, and burning out. And that uh, the bishop said, basically, you can have three months, you know, call it research, but just do what you like. And um, basically, I thought, God, I need poetry so badly. And I just 
without any end in view, without I'm now going to revive my desire to be a poet or I'm going to write books about poetry or anything, just like soaking water into the desert or digging down deep and letting a well come up, I soaked myself again in English poetry, all English poetry, not quote-unquote religious poetry, just the whole lot. And I suddenly found, as it were, the heart coming back into the head, you know, the sap rising to these kind of dry rattling twigs of theological jargon that I'd been rustling about in pulpits without really feeling the heart of. You know, the thing was coming alive again. And, I, and then I realized that there wasn't a quarrel between my, my previous vocation as a poet and my new vocation as a priest, that they really were two sides of the same coin. And about the same time, I happened to read a poem of Seamus Innes, which had the line, read poems as prayers. And that was really, really helpful to me, you know, uh, to bring my two worlds together. So I now think of them as naturally really two sides of the same vocation. And I realize it's not everybody's vocation to be a poet or at least to be a public poet. But I'm glad that every so often one crops up. I mean, when I was wrestling with whether God was really calling me to be a priest in the Church of England, to be honest, one of the reasons why I hesitated was I looked at, as it were, the vicars that I could see, and I couldn't see anybody that looked remotely like me. <laughs> but looking at the long story, I saw John Donne and George Herbert and R.S. Thomas, you know, and 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 Jared Manley Hopkins, um, you know, and Robert Herrick. And I suddenly saw, wait a minute, this is a thing. And then I, I sort of realized, you know, every couple of hundred years or so, somebody shows up and makes a real vocation out of that distinctly Anglican priesthood and that distinctly English poetry tradition and does it. And it's been a couple of hundred years, more or less, since John Keeble did it in the Christian year. So I figured it was my turn, you know. Mm -hmm. You said something that just, you said, um, you know, there are these moments when we hear the music behind what has been said. Like, how does, how does one cultivate a life of paying attention and to wonder yeah. and to the magic of of what's happening in the words. Yeah, well, again, I think poetry itself teaches that. Poetry requires it, but mm. it also gives it the very act of reading the poem. It was it. I mean, there's a very interesting passage in um, the um, snappily titled Biographia Literaria. It's a very off-putting title, but it's actually a fascinating book which Coleridge wrote and published in 1817. And in the course of it, I mean, it's a literary biography. It's what it says on the tin. But he looks back to that golden summer of 1797 when he and Wordsworth basically changed the course of English poetry and invented the Romantic movement by writing the lyrical ballads. And he gives a very interesting account of what they thought they were up to. And he doesn't say, oh, you know, life is grim and meaningless, but we thought we'd make some pretty little things that you could have inside yourself as some sort of kind of lulling fantasy compensation. Because, you know, you can shut off yourself from the world. And that's what a lot of people think poetry is, but it's not. He didn't say that at all. He said that the aim of their poetry was, and I quote him directly now, to awaken the mind's attention. Mm. Then he went on to say exactly how to do it. By removing the film of familiarity, mm. which our selfishness and solicitude has cast over the world, and to reveal again the freshness and the wonder it, wonder of it, for which he says in, in this same quotation, we have eyes but that see not, ears that hear not, and hearts that neither feel nor understand. So it was about, about defamiliarizing, making wonderful again, reintroducing all. But most of all, it's a wake up to attention. 
And it asks attention, it, it requires attention, but it also teaches attention and gives the gift of attention. The great thing about reading really good poetry, and I, I would include poetic prose in this as well, is not only is your attention absorbed in the beauty of the things presented to you, but that capacity to notice that absorbed attention remains a gift with you um, when you leave the text. So just to give you two examples, both drawn from C.S. Lewis, um, Lewis in Surprised by Joy talks about this extraordinary moment when he says his imagination was baptized. Well, he was still an atheist, you know, reading George MacDonald's novel, Fantastics, on the train, you know, in the book of, in Surrey. And he said he felt like this luminous golden cl cloud coming out of the book as he, as he enters with Anodos into the enchanted woods of the magical story. But he said when he lifted his eyes from the pages of the book, as in a sense the golden cloud was still there, the railway carriage, the woods of Surrey flashing by were all slightly more enchanted. And years later, when he wrote a very fine essay called On Three Ways of Writing for Children, where he defended himself and his friend Tolkien from the charge of writing merely escapist fantasy and, you know, taking people away from the real world. He said, there is a kind of escapist fantasy, but it's not the kind that has magic in it. It's usually the kind where you're the captain of the rugby team and everybody loves you and, you know, it's their sort of school success stories. I suppose there's become sex and shopping novels for so-called grown-ups. But um, he said... What I want to do is write about an enchanted wood so well that when a child comes out of my enchanted wood, she finds every wood she's ever in a little more enchanting. Mm. Now that's what poetry does in my view. talk about how do we cultivate and pay attention to wonder. Um, let's flip that question that Doug asked you. What happens when we don't cultivate a life of paying attention and to wonder, especially as a pastor or a priest? What does that do to the Christian imagination and our own journey with God? Well, if you think about, about um, the great moments of epiphany in the Bible, they're all moments when, as it were, God suddenly draws the veil aside or calls the attention. And he often does it to a person when they most need it and when they're lowest ebb. If you think about Jacob, the story of Jacob's ladder, I mean, Jacob has just completely screwed up his life. He's gone off. You know, he's trying to sort everything out, his own strength, you know. Then he lies down, he dreams, he sees the ladder from earth and to heaven and heaven to earth. And when he wakes up, he says, how awesome is this place? why this is the very gate of heaven, and I never knew it. And um, the whole story, everything, the story, I mean, he, Jacob is going to wrestle with the angel eventually, he's going to become Israel, the children of Israel, you know, eventually this is all going to lead to Christ. And none of this is going to happen if Jacob just carries on trying to be Mr. Successful and do all the stuff that his mum said he should do instead of his older brother and all that baggage has to be set aside. 
so that he can say, how awesome is this place? And you get exactly the same thing again later with Moses, where, you know, Moses Moses tries to do it all in his own strength, you know, and he, he ends up killing that guy in Egypt and running away, and then he screws up. And then he gets up like it's the final humiliation of a man who thought he could be a success, that the only job he can get is with his father-in-law, you know, and he's tending his father-in-law's sheep, you know, and he's on his yeah. And then he sees the burning bush, and he turns aside. And then God says, Moses, Moses, take off their shoes from off their feet, the place without standing is holy ground. And I see God doing that again, actually, all the time in life. He did it with me when I was burning out. And I said to my bishop, I can't keep going. And, you know, he said, take three months off. And I thought, and something in Simi said, read poetry. You know, that he, he, we don't have to do a whole bunch of mindfulness courses and be in the right zone and do an MA in poetry, you know, in order to read a poem. We... We have to get to the point where we admit that we've lost some sense of awe, that we can't do things in our yeah. own strength, and where yeah. we're, we're looking for water. And then the water will come. You know, the thing will rise. We will turn aside, as the poet R.S. Thomas says, to the lit bush, you know. Uh, and then we discover, as, um, as the poet uh, uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, um, that earth's crammed with heaven, mm. every common bush ablaze. But we have to kind of, in a sense, you do have to, the thing you do have to do is stop allowing your routine to crush you routinely. Mm, mm. You know, at some point, even if it's only for half an hour, and even if, even if it's only rereading a poem from Winnie the Pooh that you remember as a kid or something, do you know what I mean? You've got to let that beautiful thing happen just because it's beautiful in itself. Mm, then mm. all kinds of can go on. That's beautiful. And when you talk about Elizabeth Barrett Browning, I mean, then that next line right after that, she says, but most of us just sit around picking yeah. blackberries, right? Like just the, the, we just go back to our trivialities and our sort of normal uh, distractions and surface uh, activity. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the uh, poet T.S. Eliot has a great line in the choruses from the rock where he says, he characterizes modern life. He says, we're distracted from distraction by distraction. Right? <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, of course, it's easier said than done to, to, to get off that treadmill, especially when the treadmill is, in fact, your Twitter feed or whatever it is. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about the idea of your new book, David's Crown. Right. So there are 150 poems, e each psalm uh, from Scripture. It's this unique style where you've wo woven this poem into a corona, this coronet of poems. Yeah. The last line of each poem is the, is the first line of the following poem that runs throughout the entire book. Tell us how that idea came about. It's amazingly creative that holds mm -hmm. the whole thing together. Uh, talk a little bit about it's the book. It's kind of an extraordinary thing, and it also came out, as it were, came together much more quickly than I'd ever dared to imagine. I really got the bit between my teeth. So what happened, like, like a lot of us, um, you know, thrown back on our own resources in that first lockdown, you know, we, I don't, again, uh, different churches have different traditions, but in the Church of England, you know, part of the gig of being a priest is that you, you're meant to say, not everybody does it, but you know, you're, at least you're meant to, um, to say the daily offices as they're called, either privately or at your church, you know, morning and evening prayer. And because we have election, there are set things. And because the roots of it ultimately go back to the Benedictine tradition and the reciting the Psalms, you know, that the monks did, the Psalms are a big part of it. So you actually have, 
two or three psalms in the morning and two or three psalms in the evening that you're actually supposed to say, you know. So over the course of a couple of months or three months, you get through the whole Psalter. But to be honest, talk, you know, we're talking about people's routines commuting or their routines in their dull jobs. I'm sorry to say that that too can become a routine. You mm-hmm. just rattle through the psalms. It's like, did I say that? And you kind of know them, you know, and you sort of, you know, and every so often one line or another will strike out at you and go, oh, yeah. But anyway, uh, when I was doing that, as this lockdown started, I suddenly was gripped by the Psalms because, of course, so many, the Psalms are so uninhibited. You know, we're all supposed to be, you know, especially if you're part of a church network and everybody's supposed to be doing okay and managing and, you know, I'm fine and all of that stuff where you (laughs) present a character of sort of unblemished wholeness, you know, but actually you're cracking up, you know. Now, the psalmist doesn't bother with that because the psalmist knows God can see everything and the psalmists just tell it like it is. And if they say, I'm falling to pieces, they say, I'm falling to pieces. And everybody, you know, who knows and loves the psalms recognizes that honesty and is enabled by it. You know, Jesus Christ himself, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me and sought so far from me, you know? A psalm, that's in the Bible, that you're allowed to say to God, where do you think you are? You know, what is this? You know, why don't you change things? You know, why do you stand so far off? Um, So um, I suddenly found the psalms were enabling me to say things that I really wanted to say, but that actually culturally I was inhibited from saying about fear, about loneliness, about despair, but also about joy and beauty and praise. Because one of the first things that happened in our lockdown was that kind of nature came back and we could hear the bird song and we were allowed out for one hour a day for exercise. And I would walk along the little river near here and there's a tree planted just by the waters there, really beautiful, great tree just by a bridge where I, and I used to really stop on the bridge and look at the tree by the waters and of course I was going through the Psalms so the Psalms you know he should be like a tree planted by the waters mm. that bring forth fruit in due, due season and his leaf shall not wither you know in his law doth he exercise himself day and night and I thought you know I'm going to write a poem about how much that Psalm means to me and how it's this tree you know so I was vaguely thinking I'll write a poem about Psalm 1 you know no problem um, but meantime um I was struck by this phrase in the Coverdale translation, he doth exercise himself. And I was exercising myself physically. But I began to think that perhaps a spiritual exercise of really praying the Psalms, really letting them, you know, saying, forget everything else. I'm just going to, I'm, you know, St. Athanasius says that the, the book of Psalms not only allows us to hear God, but it allows us to hear our own hearts. You know, it gives a voice to our own hearts. And so, um, I began to take them seriously. Meantime, I mean, I was aware that um, I was reading, as it happened, a book of uh, which was the history of um, prayer beads, European prayer beads, um, which we now associate mainly with the rosary. And you have a five decades and you say it three times and all of that. Um, But they weren't originally, they were only associated with Mary in the high Middle Ages. Originally, they were to do with saying the Psalms. And you had a set of five tens. And as you said, the Psalms, you, and the lay brothers who, who didn't have Latin and couldn't recite the whole Psalter in Latin with the monks were given these short little prayers that they could say that were like the epitome or equivalent of a Psalm, and then they could do it. And I suddenly thought, I wonder if I could, you know, make a series of little poems from the Psalms that were like that. And then I discovered that the, um, the name for these, one of the early names for these circles of beads was a corona. Or chaplet, because of course, corona means crown in Latin, and 
And then I thought, where have I heard that before? And then I suddenly remembered John Donne, who's a great hero of mine, had written this little sequence called La Corona, which was a set of seven sonnets all addressed to Christ. Uh, the opening line of which is, deign at my hands this crown of prayer and praise. Mm. And then the last line of one sonnet is the first line of the next, and the last line of that is the first line of the next. And then the really cool thing is that the final sonnet, sonnet number seven, the final line of the entire sequence is, deign at my hands this crown of prayer and praise. I'm giving you this crown, Christ. But of course, that's how it starts. And that's why it's a coronet or a corona, because it links. So mm. so it's John Donne that is your inspiration. Well, John Donne did that, right? And he did wow. seven sonnets, right? And I thought, God, that's pretty cool. That must have had some thinking about. And then because I knew this thing about the 150 Psalms were originally, I suddenly it was like a really crazy idea. I went like, what if I did this for the whole Psalter? What if I still hadn't even written properly Psalm number one? I just had that escape. Like, what if I did this for all of them? And what if the last line was the first line? And then I thought, well, if I do this, I have to know how the entire book will end before it starts. I have to know the climax of Psalm 150, a psalm of pure praise, an invitation to praise. And somehow that has to make sense for this invitation to come into praise, which is because, of course, you know, psalm means praise. The book of Psalms literally translated as the book of praises. And they begin and end in praise, even though they contain so much lament. So I read, I reread Psalm 1 and Psalm 150 and prayed and meditated about it. And I, this one line came, come to the place where every breath is praise. Mm. I thought that's the end and the beginning. Now I know where I'm going. And then I started to post a few of them on my blog and my publisher saw them. <laughs> she said, I think you could do a book with this. And I said, well, it's 150 poems. And by this time I decided that each poem should have exactly 15 lines because I am a pentameter 10 syllables. So there'd be 150 syllables in each poem. It'd be like the whole altar. And, and then I used Dante. You know, it's, I was really setting myself some quite interesting pieces of craftsmanship and technique in it. So I said to my publisher, well, I reckon it'll be two or three years, but I hope to finish it. And then as the as the as the lockdown deepened and we could do less and less, and as I felt the pain in the country and as I began to read the Psalms of Lament, I just got into it and I thought, I'm just gonna do this. I'm gonna do this for several hours every day. This mm -hmm. is what I'm gonna do. And I found the poems flowing and I found a voice, you know, that I felt I hadn't found before. And of course, it is easy to keep going from very Moorish because your landing place at the end of one poem yeah. is your springboard for the next poem. You're already, you've already started the next poem in the very act of finishing the previous one. So that, that's what I found in reading them. Yeah. I, I think I'm just going to read one or two, but because it's the first line of the next one, I'll go, I'll just read one I'll more. Just read I'll just that read one, one more. Yeah, and yeah. I end up reading seven or eight or nine or 10. I'm really glad you're reading them in a sequence like that. Cause there's obviously two ways to use the book. I mean, perfectly legitimate ways. One is if you've got the book of Psalms and you know, you're just going to pray a couple of Psalms or you've got your favorite Psalm and you can read the Psalm. I use the early 16th century Coverdale translation just because the rhythm of it is so good. And you can read the Psalm and read my poem. My poem is not a translational version of the psalm. Yeah. It's a prayer in response to the psalm. But obviously it's riffing on, sometimes it's just one phrase or some particular image. Sometimes it's two or three images. Sometimes I'm pushing back against the psalm when he's going like, oh, totally crush my enemies because they're just odious pigs and I'm great. You know, I'm getting like, really? Can I, you know? Um, 
So I have to push back and say, how would Jesus pray this psalm? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and in fact, the, my experience was not only that they spoke to me about the current experience, but I, this is the paradox, because it's an Old Testament book, you know, but I came so close to Jesus in making these poems. Mm. I really saw, you know, there's a key line in a way for the whole book in my response to Psalm 22 which obviously Christ had on his lips as he died. And uh, the, that line is, for Christ himself is crying through this psalm. And I feel that. So, yeah, so so I, I found myself, um, you know, deeply, deeply drawn. To, so you can read it one way. You can go like, here's a psalm, here's the poem. I'll overhear the conversation between the poem and the psalm. I'm done. But I hope that some people, you know, over a few evenings or a week or whatever, will sit down with without necessarily having the Book of Psalms to cross-check. They can cross-check a bit if they like. We'll just see it as almost, it's almost like a confession. It's like an autobiographical poem. It's a story. It's an epic story. It's a journey. It's the kind of hero journey from the start and then down into the depth, the absolute nadir at Psalm 88, and then gradually coming up. And I hope it'll be compelling in that sense. And in that sense, it's a kind of, 2,250 line poem, you know, that's, but the extraordinary thing, I've, this has never happened to me before as a poet, because I'm, I'm, I'm very much at the craftsman end of poetry rather than the spontaneous free flow end of it, um, much as I like some of that stuff, you know, but um, I've never written at this pace. I actually, the first draft, obviously I had to tweak it in various ways, but the basically, I wrote the whole thing in its first full draft in May and June of last year, mm. just two months or really almost a bit and a half. So it was exciting. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about pastors on the hardest day of the week. On Mondays, it's been a really difficult year. Um, how can these poems and other poems support and help pastors in the season, uh, in, on a Monday and even in the, yeah. in the season in which we find ourselves in? Okay, well, we're, we're thinking about poetry more widely for, for a moment rather than just focusing on my own. I think one of the things a pastor who starts to read around in good Christian poetry, so let's say they're reading Christina Rossetti and they're reading Jared Manley Hopkins and uh, people like that as well, right? The first thing they're going to get, I think, is that there's a realization that they're not alone. You know, there's a Jared Manley Hopkins poem, a sonnet that starts with the words, no worst, there is none, pitched past pitch of grief. Wild pangs will schooled on four pangs wilder ring. I mean, you know, I, he's just exhausted and crushed. You know, or Christina Rossetti, you know, asking really, yeah. does the road wind up here all the way? <laughs> yes, to the very top, you know. <laughs> but but she's made a song out of it and she's keeping going. You know, they'll find, you know, that in George Herbert, you know, George Herbert has the classic Pastor on Monday poem. Mm. which is called the collar, which is a, a collar. Uh, this is like the dog collar, but it's also the the, bit, the collar and, you know, your vocation. But collar, they, they had varied spelling in those days. Collar means anger, big collar. Oh, so oh. collar, you may remember, begins, I struck the board and cried, no more. I will abroad. My lines are life as free, free as the road, as large as store. And he's, he goes on for about 20 lines going like, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. And, uh, you know, in lots of different ways of saying, um, and then the poem suddenly turns and says, but all the time I raved and grew more wild, methought I heard one calling 
child. And I replied, my Lord. Uh, <laughs> <It's been> wow. <laughs> Bring on Tuesday. <laughs> so, you know, there's that. They'd find that. Yeah. They'd find that. But they'd also, I think, find find many other things that um, that are to do with, I mean, their griefs and their doubts will be expressed, but also there will be joy. There will be just sheer gift. And then they may discover, even though they're reading for fun and just to recreate their minds and, 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 and you know, bring the sap back up from the roots into their soul, um, they may discover, particularly if they're not trying to look for good bits for sermons, they, they may nevertheless find that there are things they're given in poetry that will flow beautifully into how they preach that will naturally mm. illustrate not because they've searched you know wikipedia for a or wiki quote for a quick quote on justice or something but because that they've actually you know it's moved them and so it'll naturally move other people and i've certainly found particularly in that most vital but delicate of pastoral tasks which is ministering to those who mourn and those who grieve you know sometimes only only poetry will do it you know um um, and, uh, you know, there are some, there are so many, you know, beautiful poems that, that, uh, that, that will work there. And, um, I once did an anthology called Love Remember, which is just 40 poems for that journey through sort of grief and bereavement, which I, I think, so there'll be, it'll turn out that there will be resources, but I think the pastor should be going for that, not. Not because, oh, God, there's another bloody thing I've got to do to keep up with whatever's trendy, but just because, hey, this is going to be really good for me and good for my soul, and I'm going to take care of myself while I do this, you know, and and, and that's just a lovely thing in itself. Well, this has been an unbelievably rich and engaging conversation, and yeah. uh, so deeply grateful for your time to be able to share. Where I, I've loved David's crown, and uh, just in a a, a bit of vulnerability here. Um, I'm just recovering from a very severe bout with COVID and Sorry. David's, David's crown has actually been an incredible source of hope for me, even as I was in the intensive care unit wow. of the hospital of actually reading these poems, uh, with an IV in my arm. And so I just want to thank you, uh, wow. for what you did a year ago of writing this and, uh, and how it ministered to me in a hospital room in the midst of my recovery. And, uh, so thank you for, for the, for being faithful to put, put it down on paper, uh, in a way that has just continued to, to meet me where I'm at, especially as I was mourning and recovering and slowing down all the reasons you just talked about. But as we, as we end here, I'm wondering, Malcolm, would you be willing to Psalm three and Psalm four were really, they were so moving for me, uh, especially when I was in the, in the hospital, would you be willing to read uh, Psalm three, uh, from David's crown, just as we oh, end here. I'll happily, happily do that. So you might, the little titles on David's crown in Latin should trouble nobody. They're literally just the first words of the Psalm in Latin. That's just the titles they have in my old prayer book, Domine quid multiplicati, like why, why all these troubles multiplying? So here's my, my poem on Psalm three. That you may find your peace in his goodwill. Call out to him and tell him all your fear, for he will hear you from his holy hill. He knows how many ills, both far and near, oppress your soul and how they multiply these obstacles and problems. 
how you veer from one side to the other, from one lie to yet another, till there's nothing true. Just let it go for now. Don't even try. Lie down and rest. Let him look after you. And in the morning, when you rise again, then let him lift your head and change your view, replenish, renovate you, and sustain his long, slow blessings in your growing soul till troubles cease and only joys remain. Well, thank you. I'm very moved that my poem was there for you. <laughs> thank you for that gift. Thank you. Well, yeah. Doug, <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, if I was if I wasn't a fan of Malcolm Gite beforehand, I definitely am now. But uh, gosh. Uh, I uh I know our listeners couldn't see it, but I was uh, moved to tears when he was reading Psalm three. Yeah, and um, it was a little bit awkward, but I I don't know where those that that emotion actually came from. But I'm really grateful. I hope hopefully I didn't I didn't startle Malcolm too much, <laughs> but. <laughs> I, I was just caught off guard um, by that. And, you know, he talked about why poetry. And I, throughout the interview, I'm just taking a, a kind of a running list here on my notepad. But yeah, he, I found four things. There are probably more, but I heard four. Like, so why poetry? Because to remind us we're not alone. Yep. Number two, to remove the film of familiarity, which I thought was fascinating. Um, to slow words down. And it helps us mourn. And, and I actually, in the midst of my um, time in the hospital with COVID, uh, it, I, it, these helped me mourn. And they reminded me that I wasn't alone and that I was seen. And uh, so I, I think that's why I was so moved with emotion in, in this. But uh, well, one thing our listeners couldn't see, which is a shame, is uh, I mean, he's got this beautiful, long, flowing gray and white hair and this big beard. But he's yeah. sitting in his office smoking his pipe during the interview. There's just puffs of smoke. I mean, it was just an unbelievable conversation with him. It was just, <laughs> everything you'd think of as, a, as an Anglican poet priest, he yeah. was everything and then yeah. some. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, whatever you're imagining right now, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, what are some things oh. that stuck out to you, Doug? Dude, I, my goodness. I think he said that he said uh, to awaken the mind's attention mm. um, as he was talking about the power of poetry. And I, I mean, so the, there's that piece of, it just felt like every three seconds he was dropping these like bombs of truth and of beauty. Uh, but there was also just the brilliant, like this man is brilliant. I mean, my goodness, quoting poet after poet after poet and just entering into it was just unbelievable. So yeah, I, I've got a list of poets that I'm in the process of probably hopping on Amazon here as soon as we're done recording this and, yeah. and, and jumping into some more. But I was just so taken back by the way that he's looking and encouraging pastors to recognize that like 
we, we are already poets. And, you know, as we are hearing the music behind what has been said in that pastoral counseling moment or um, in the places where we are. And so I just think that there's something there for me too, that I was just really encouraged by. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I, you know, I felt like even as he was, it was interesting because, it, and you, you said it and our, you know, listeners, if you've stuck with us the whole time, you know, Jr. read that George Herbert poem, and then he starts talking about it, and it's just like <laughs> I'm texting Jr. I'm like, "What is happening right now?" Yeah, that was uh, so, he had no idea that no in idea. our intro that we talked about this poem, and he starts quoting it with his like, <laughs> yeah. "Like what?" Um, uh, yeah, so he mentioned George Herbert, he mentioned John Donne, he mentioned Gerald Stanley Hopkins, mm -hmm. he, he mentioned a lot of others, and he even mentioned he said if there ever was a Monday morning pastor poem. It was The Collar by George Herbert. I'm yeah. really interested in looking that up. <laughs> Me too. Um, Me too. You're right. My, my list of, of poets just continues to grow, yeah. uh, just feverishly writing these down. But I loved how, you know, when he talked about being a poet priest, how he said that he was burning out for those seven years without mm -hmm. poetry. Mm -hmm. And he really needed that to be able to write that on a sabbatical. It, and, and as I think back to my sabbatical and knowing you'll be on your sabbatical, even at the airing uh, of this episode. Um, I read a lot of Wendell Berry. In fact, mm. he has a, a book uh, called Sabbath. Yep. Uh, and uh, it was a collection of his Sabbath poems that he wrote uh, every Sunday. And uh, I remember just needing to slow down and read through that Sabbath book of poetry during my sabbatical. But just interesting, you know, and, and he talked about the transferable skills. What an yep. interesting phrase of yeah. how being a poet made him a better priest and being a priest made him a better poet. And, um, Anyway, I, I just, I was convinced of it beforehand, but I think I'm even more convinced of the importance of poetry, especially the year that we've had yes. and the wounds that we've experienced uh, is sort of this global PTSD. Um, but yeah, removing the film of famili familiarity, as yeah. he talked about, so important. Um, and even, even just thinking about the Jewish rabbis, um, you know, they talk about the importance of wonder. Like you can't be a good rabbi if you aren't full of wonder. And uh, I think in many ways, poetry deepens um, that sense of wonder um, that we have. So anyway, unbelievable, unbelievable. So good. Yeah. So what, uh, yeah, quick resource, obviously uh, David's crown uh, will have, and again, this is in our show notes, so please check it out. Uh, at, but pick up the book. Uh, it, it's not if you should buy it, just when you should get it, the sooner, the better. And then uh, Malcolm's, website malcolmgeit.com again please click on that link there's a ton of poetry on there and um you get to just there's so much so many good resources sure how about some questions in a benediction yeah well even on the malcolm geit site it's not you don't just read his poems but he also uh records them so you can listen to him reciting them which is even more uh, beautiful so good um, but uh i just have a simple question and that's uh so what poetry will you read before the end of the day. The gauntlet's uh, been laid down. Yeah, just, just pick just pick uh, something. And if you don't know where to start, go to malcolmgeit.com. Um, but uh, I, I, we really want to encourage you, press in, find a book of poetry, read a poem. Doesn't have to be every day for hours on end while you, you know, sip coffee in some coffee shop somewhere. Just, just pick something small and enter into it. Even if it's George Herbert's poem on prayer. Uh, that we that we've talked about at the intro, and then also that Malcolm referred to. So, um, yeah. So that would be the question: What poem will you read before the end of today? Um, 
And then as far as the the benediction, that brothers and sisters, may you enter into poetry, knowing that our scriptures are full of poetry, a whole genre of our Bible. In the midst of this, may you remember as you read poetry that you're not alone. May it remove the film of familiarity. May it help you slow down in a world that says speed up. And would it help you mourn by putting words and language uh, to what we're feeling. May you go and enter into the the God who created the Psalms, who believes the Psalms are important, and who still believes that poetry is an important part of prayer. So may you go and pray well by reciting and reading and even creating poetry yourself. Mm